0: political bullshit. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. I'm worried about the fact that our workers are seeing a decline in their standard of living. We will make America great again. Health care is a human right, not a privilege.
1: Welcome to episode 12 of the Last Resort Podcast. I'm Steven Slama. today I'll be giving you an update on the political climate. We've got a really exciting show for you today. We've got Joe Biden and Donald Trump attacking each other in new campaign ads. We've got Joe Biden's potential VP picks. I've got a huge update on Tara Reid and everything that's gone down on that front. I've got an update on Richard Burr and his insider trading controversy, a little bit about Kim Jong-un. So let's start with that. Did another Un bite the dust? Nobody knows. Maybe. I don't know. There are a few things we do know, at least a few things we think we know. When it comes to North Korea, they like to keep things pretty mysterious. But the uh, first rumors that were spreading was that he's in critical condition following complications from a surgery and some saying that uh, he's very close to death and then eventually saying that he actually has died. So far, there's no confirmation that he's dead or that he's even in any sort of critical condition. Both China and South Korea have said that they found no reason to believe any of those rumors. But then China ended up dispatching medical experts to North Korea to assess the situation. So obviously, they have some concern. and then. Trump's been downplaying the situation as well. But who knows? The reports state that Kim was undergoing a cardiovascular surgery because of health issues that were necessary caused by years of smoking and inactivity and obesity. And the surgeon was apparently nervous about operating on him because he's not used to operating on obese people. Which, just the irony there. How... I don't want to say amazing, but it's, I mean, that's like the ultimate fuck you in the form of natural justice that you starve your people for decades. You force them to live in poverty while you fatten up like some kind of chubby Guinea pig. And because you keep your country in solitude, your surgeons have no experience other than operating on skinny malnourished bodies. And then suddenly you need to rely on them. And you plop your pudgy ass on that operating table and they're just like, what the fuck is this? I mean, you could have at least had them practice on like a pig or something beforehand so they'd at least have a better idea of what they're getting into, like familiarize, familiarize themselves with the territory that's your body. But <laughs> if this is true, the fact that like the the beating down of the people in your country by you and your family for decades is ultimately what causes your demise is like it's morbid to say it's funny like you don't really want to see anybody die but when it comes to somebody that's been terrorizing his country the entire world with nuclear weapons threatening to basically destroy the entire world then good riddance and then the fact that their evil behavior is what ultimately causes their death is just tasty justice in my mind but again he might not even be dead and even if he is we don't know what that means for the future of north korea It's not clear who's going to be taking his place. And I could be wrong, but it seems to me like the last few years, Kim's actually kind of backed off of that whole batshit crazy, we're going to nuke you act. And who's to say that the person that takes his place isn't going to be even crazier than Kim? It could be somebody who fell total victim to the whole death to America brainwashing they do over there. And they might be much more trigger happy with that nuke button. So if he is dead, we're going to have to keep a damn close eye on it until on the situation until things stabilize. It's not really any, and you can't really celebrate too soon until uh, we figure out what's actually going to go on. So anyway, conspiracy theories. Personally, I think, and I don't hold too much weight in conspiracy theories, but what's the most obvious way to take out an authoritarian dictator? You have a quote unquote complication during a surgery. I mean, the surgery was to put a stent in. That's a very common surgery. It's not even considered a, a major surgery. It's a minor surgery. And the net complications with that is very rare. And The fatality rate is well below 1%. But if you're an evil dictator, I'm sure the fatality rate is much higher. Just the fact that the doctor expressed that he was nervous in the first place is kind of like setting up for his excuse Right after the surgery kills him, so like, well, I told you, I was nervous. Not used to operating on fat fucks like Kim. The other conspiracy is that he might be suffering from COVID nineteen, and he's just going into hiding while he recovers. Because North Korea is claiming they have zero cases, or they might have. I think they might have reported a few now. Whether that was before he went into hiding or after, but he probably just wants to maintain the idea that this pandemic isn't a threat to his great nation. So if he gets it. Then obviously that doesn't look good. So he's just going into hiding until he recovers from that. And then he's just going to act like everything's fine. It's not the first time he's gone into hiding anyway. So who knows what's going on? I'm sure the rumors are going to keep flying. And I'm guessing it's going to be a long while before we actually know with confidence what's actually going on there. So I'll keep you updated. All right. <clears throat> Let's talk about Tara Reed. So it's been a while since. We last talked about this story, and a lot happened since then. So she's filed a criminal complaint. Um, Alyssa Milano, popular Me Too voice, spoke out against her allegations. And the New York Times finally covered the story in a very messy way. And then very recently, there was a clip from Larry King Live from around the time that the alleged rape occurred that shows her mom calling in and anon- anonymously asking Larry King about her daughter's situation. So I'll talk about all that. Let's start at the top, though. So she filed the complaint with the D.C. Police Department. Um, when she filed it, she acknowledged that it it's past the statute of limitations, but she stated she still wanted to come forward to help ensure that powerful, me- powerful men are held accountable for their actions. She said she's not really looking for traditional justice by filing the complaint. She just wants to support the idea that you shouldn't have to keep a secret just because somebody's powerful. Um, despite her coming out with the allegations, weeks earlier, and then filing that complaint, mainstream media still was refusing to cover the story. It wasn't until Easter Sunday, 19 days after she made the allegations, that it was finally covered in the New York Times. And then you compare that to the Brett Kavanaugh allegations, Brett Kavanaugh being a conservative Supreme Court judge, where they had an article on the day the allegations were made. So I'll get to the New York Times article, but before the article came out, Alyssa Milano spoke out against Tara Reed. Um, So if you don't know, Alyssa Milano is a loud voice and popularizer for the Me Too movement. She's a supporter of Time's Up, the organization that told Tara Reid that they can't take her case because they can't aid in prosecuting a federal official as a nonprofit organization, which is a lie, a total lie. Um, She was very active in the Brett Kavanaugh case. She was even invited to attend the Kavanaugh hearing. And so in those early days of the Me Too movement, she made statements like, I don't believe any man's misogyny should take precedent over a survivor's humanity. She tweeted, another, a separate tweet, you can't pretend to be the party of the American people and then not support a woman who comes forward with her Me Too story. She just said outright, you can't, you, have to su- you can't not support a woman who comes forward with her story. She doesn't say anything about you need evidence, this and that. You have to acknowledge these women when they come forward. You have to show them support. So she was noticeably quiet when Tara Reed came out with her story, especially considering she's a leader when it comes to women making the hard decision to speak out about their experiences. But then you learn that she actually has a personal relationship with Joe Biden, that she knows him very well. And then you see why she was quiet and her credibility crumbles right before your eyes. So after she broke her silence about Tara Reed, she said, I believe that even though we should believe women, It does not mean at the expense of not giving men their due process and investigating situations. Then she states that Tara Reed's claims aren't credible because mainstream media hasn't reported on it. And if it was a credible story, they would have reported on it. And this becomes a common excuse for everybody, as you'll hear later on when I get to the New York Times story too. Their excuse for not reporting it was because it wasn't a hot story. So let me get this straight. It wasn't A hot story because media wasn't covering it, and media wasn't covering it because it wasn't a hot story. And the story isn't credible because media isn't covering it. All right, got it. Makes sense to me. So, in an interview with BuzzFeed, she said she's standing by Joe Biden because she believes she has thoroughly vetted him over the years. So, she's blatantly putting it out there. Tara Reid is lying. She thinks that, well, I know Joe, I don't think he could do it. Tara Reid came out with a story. I'm not buying it. She's lying. I'm not supporting her story. There's no other way you can interpret that. Tara Reid is lying. So, I mean, eight other allegations have been made against him. He's apologized on camera for his creepy behavior. And then a woman comes forward with a story, and she refuses to acknowledge that it may be true. Now, I'm not saying it is true. I agree with what she said, that men deserve their due process. What I have a problem with is her inconsistency and what it reveals. She was never doing this to stand up for women. She was doing this to tear down certain men. By cherry-picking the way she is here, she's destroying an entire movement that helped women feel comfortable coming forward with their stories. Again, I don't throw my full support behind the entire Me Too movement. I'm, saying, I'm not saying it's a big success without flaws. It's had severe flaws. It was an overcorrection in many ways. Of course, you shouldn't believe all women. You shouldn't believe all men. You shouldn't believe all anything. But so, in large ways, it it wasn't totally honest, and it had the potential to be politicized. But it was also important in giving women the support they needed to take the step to come out with their story, and that was important. And part of the reason it's so hard for women to come forward is because of the exact reason she is standing against Tara Reid right now, stating that she should be dismissed because there's no clear evidence and because of due process. And while you can't prosecute men solely on their word, solely on word, you can still you still have to acknowledge the accusations. And that's all Tara is looking for here. That's what she said. She's, when she filed her complaint, she said she wasn't looking for tradi- traditional justice. She wanted people to acknowledge the kind of man that Joe is and the kind of man Joe has shown himself to be. But this wasn't about standing up for women, for Alyssa Milano, because if it was, she wouldn't back down the moment it got hard for her. So in that BuzzFeed interview, she also said, I think when we get into this place of believing women, Regardless of giving men due process, it actually does more harm to the movement than good. Now let's pair this with a statement that I read earlier in the context of Brett Kavanaugh. You can't pretend to be a party of the American people and then not support a woman who comes forward with her Me Too story. Again, I believe we shouldn't just blindly believe all women. But the inconsistency inconsistency here discredits the entire movement. And it shows that it was just a political ploy for those who started the movement. And I'm not saying that there were political motives for all the women who came forward. Of course not. I'm saying that the people on top, the voices, the spokespeople of the movement, they used these women and their stories as a ploy for their own political motives to take down the people they didn't support. And that's what's wrong here. So, New York Times story. After Melissa Milano broke her silence on the matter, the New York Times finally published a story as well. Um, The original story, as I mentioned they ran the story 19 days after she came out with the allegation. 19 days, shortly after Bernie dropped out. It was on Easter Sunday. It sounds to me like there might be some strategic timing going on here. Just like Alyssa Milano, the New York Times showed clear skepticism toward Tara's allegations in the article. So here's some of the key takeaways. Um, I'll just try and read them all and then give you my thoughts on them later. Um, we found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Biden beyond hugs, kisses, and touching that women previously said made them uncomfortable. Well, actually, all right. So after they posted the article, I got to mention, they ended up retracting the sentence and replacing it with a tamer one. But not that, just that, they tried to be all sneaky about it too. Usually when you edit an article, there are notes mentioning the edits that took place, but they just removed part of it and then left no trace. And they didn't just alter the article and They also deleted an accompanying tweet that showed the same section of the article. So then they changed that sentence to the Times found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Mr. Biden. They replaced we found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Biden beyond hugs, kisses, and touching that women previously said made them uncomfortable with we found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Mr. Biden. So, all right, I'll go into my thoughts on each of these, but uh, I'll just read the rest of the statements just to give you a complete picture of what the article said. Um, and then, yeah, then we'll talk about it. So uh, this next line is in reference to her having filed the criminal complaint with the DC police on Thursday, Miss Reed filed a report with the Washington DC police saying she was the victim of a sexual assault in 1993. The public incident report provided to the times by Miss Reed and the police does not mention Mr. Biden by name, but she said the complaint was about him. Miss Reed said she filed the report to give herself an additional degree of safety from potential threats. Filing a false police report may be punishable by a fine and imprisonment. Interesting little fact to throw in there at the end. I wonder what they're implying there. Then they fall right into this shameful pit of whataboutism. President Trump has been accused of sexual assault and misconduct by more than a dozen women who have described a pattern of behavior that went far beyond the accusations against Mr. Biden. The president also directed illegal payments, including $130,000 to a pornographic film actress, Stormy Daniels, before the 2016 election to silence women about alleged affairs with Mr. Trump, according to federal prosecutors. Mr. Trump has even boasted about his mistreatment of women. In a 2005 recording, he described pushing himself on women and said he would grab them by the pussy, bragging that he could get away with anything because of his celebrity. How is that relevant to what Tara is facing? Why does that matter? The fact that even the New York Times stooped down to the level of multiple paragraphs of whataboutism journalism is a huge red flag to what's going on here. You should never discredit someone's experience because somebody else had it worse, or may have had it worse. It's one thing to express skepticism or say due process needs to be served before we get too deep, but then to use blatant whataboutism to direct people away from the story is disgraceful, and the New York Times should be ashamed that they would publish a story like that. So after the article went public, the executive editor, Dean Buckbeckay, he was interviewed in pretty good detail about the article and all the inadequacies and controversies surrounding it. So. Let's go back and look at each of these statements that they made, and I'll tell you what the executive editor had to say as well. So start with the timing of the article. It came out 19 days after she made the allegations. Compare that to Julie Swetnick's allegations against Brett Kavanaugh. They ran that story the day she made the allegations. Their defense, Kavanaugh was already in a public forum in a large way. He said, if you ask the average person in America, they didn't know about the Tara Reid case because you aren't telling them. Kavanaugh was a running hot story. This is what he said also. Kavanaugh was a running hot story. I don't think it's that the ethical standards were different. I think the news judgments had to be made from a different perspective and a running hot story. The Brett Kavanaugh story was a hot running story because news outlets like you made it a hot running story. And then to justify you didn't run the story because the average person doesn't know about Tara Reid. How is America supposed to know her story if news outlets like you refuse to cover it? I bet at the New York Times like headquarters, they've got break rooms with TVs in the corner, and they've got CNN and Fox, and every time they're sitting there eating their fucking scones, and they see one of these news channels break into a breaking news segment, they all just cringe and facepalm. They're like, what are they doing? Why on earth would they cover breaking new news? America doesn't already know about this stuff. They're, they're not going to want to watch this. They don't know about it already. This is media suicide. You're the news, New York Times. Keyword, new. You release new information to the public to inform us on new things happening in the world. This is just another lame excuse to cover up for Joe Biden and the establishment. There were reporters that worked for other mainstream media outlets that brought up how companies like CNN and MSNBC looked to the New York Times and the Washington Post to find out what stories to run. They're the ones that take fresh news and they decide whether or not to throw it in the circuit and t- turn it into a hot running story. New York Times, Washington Post. There were times when a reporter would say, a reporter from CNN would say, I want to run a new story. And they would, their editor would say, wait until the Times runs it first, because that gives them something to fall back on in case it does receive any backlash. So with the New York Times choosing not to run the story, it doesn't make it into the circuit. So, of course, it's not a hot running story. This wasn't ever out of your hands. It was a choice you made. It was a conscious decision not to report this story. Don't act like your hands were tied because you can only run stale news. And as I mentioned earlier, Alyssa Milano, made the, with the exact same reasoning, she discredited the allegations. Saying if it was credible, then mainstream media would have picked up on it. Now you have mainstream media saying they didn't pick up on it because people didn't already know the story. If you think it's bullshit, just say it. Just come out and say it. Fess up. That's fine if that's your angle. But don't sit there and feed us these total bullshit excuses like we were born yesterday. And then they go on and they say that they felt it was important to run the story because he was already Brett Kavanaugh, to run the Brett Kavanaugh story because he was in in a public forum in a large way. But like Joe Biden isn't, he's a presidential candidate. He's one of the biggest figures in politics. He's much bigger, much more prominent in the news than Brett Kavanaugh ever was. Again, don't feed us this bullshit that he wasn't relevant enough. Just say it. You don't believe her. But they can't just come out and say it because there's no moral justification for discrediting her as quickly as they are. The reason that they are is to cover up for the Biden campaign. And if you want to be a credible news source, you can't be caught covering up for politicians that way. Fortunately for us, the executive editor made it clear that's exactly what they're doing which you'll see in a minute when I read the next statement. So at least now we know to take everything they bring to the table with a grain of salt if we weren't already. So, all right. So, yeah, the next statement. We found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Biden beyond hugs, kisses, and touching that women previously said made them uncomfortable. Then they replaced it with, the Times found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Mr. Biden. When the executive editor was asked about this in the interview, he stated that the Biden campaign requested it be taken out because they thought it painted a negative picture about the VP. He said, I think that the campaign thought that the phrasing was awkward and made it look like there were other instances in which he had been accused of sexual misconduct. There were other instances in which he had been accused of sexual misconduct. Second, it shouldn't matter how Joe Biden thinks this makes him look. This is the news. It's supposed to be unbiased. It's not a children's book. It reports on facts with the intent to inform us. If you stick to that and it paints a negative picture, that's not the fault of the article. That's the fault of Joe for giving them a negative picture to paint. There were other instances. Even if they hadn't made the retraction, the original sentence still downplays the creepiness that Joe Biden puts out there in in an immoral way. The original sentence had the intention of Directing the focus away from the fact that there were other reports of creepy kissing, hugging, and touching, and instead shining the spotlight on the fact that they couldn't find any further pattern of sexual misconduct. You roll right over the part about how he's been accused of hugging, kissing, and touching, and making women uncomfortable. I mean, kissing and touching? I mean, think about that. You listening, a man, woman, something in between, beyond whatever, you're at a party and somebody says stay away from that guy he's a perv and then everybody else at the party says what that guy he's not a perv we love that guy i mean yeah he might kiss you and might start touching you and might sniff your well no he's going to sniff your hair but he's not a perv come on it's like well news flash new york times creepy unwanted kissing and touching falls under sexual misconduct sexual misconduct unwelcome behavior of a sexual nature that is committed without consent or by force intimidation or manipulation. That's the definition for sexual misconduct. The definition for sexual assault, when someone touches any part of another person's body in a sexual way, even through clothes, without that person's consent. The definition for sexual assault might as well just be see videos of Joe Biden touching little girls on YouTube because according to that definition, he was sexually assaulting those girls, sliding his hand over their chest, holding it there while they're clearly uncomfortable, trying to shake away from him at times, And he literally just holds them there, like groping them. It's disgusting. And they say, well, we haven't found a pattern beyond kissing, hugging, and touching. Oh, and one rape. Can't forget that. But it's just one. It's not a pattern. So nothing to worry about here, nothing to see. And and then the implication that the pattern of behavior he's displayed can be overlooked because it didn't go beyond that. Well, anything beyond hugging, touching, and kissing is felony, sexual assault, or rape. So they're like, well... He might have done those things repeatedly, but he didn't rape anybody. Well, except for that one. But we're all good here. So they're implying that any sexual assault that isn't full-blown rape can be dismissed. And you almost forget that the article actually is about a rape allegation. It's a gross attempt to dismiss her story with an argument of, well, every other complaint against him wasn't rape. It was just kissing and touching. So let's just chalk that one rape, just chalk it up one for fun. Okay, so The next statement is the one about her filing a criminal complaint with the D.C. Police Department. Um, I'll just read the end of it here that contains the part I want to focus on. Ms. Reed said she filed the report to give herself an additional degree of safety from potential threats. Filing a false police report may be punishable by a fine and imprisonment. So this is clearly an attempt to paint a negative picture about Tara Reed just like Joe was afraid they were doing to him in an earlier statement that he had them switch. But the difference here is that the earlier statement about Joe wasn't just a random fact thrown in there. It was a real fact. This is a random fact thrown in that implies she filed a false police report. Adding that statement, filing a false police report, may be punishable by a fine and imprisonment. It's just them injecting their own biased opinion that her accusation is false with no other facts. The statement about Joe that he had them cut out No pattern of sexual assault beyond kissing, hugging, and touching was literally a fact. It was an informative fact to let the reader know that the suspect in this rape allegation has a history of unwanted kissing, hugging, and touching, but not beyond, apparently. If you're reporting the facts, it makes much more sense for you to leave that in and take out your implication that you think she filed a false police report. So they asked the executive editor about this, and his defense was that you could just as easily imply the opposite would she lie in a police report knowing it's illegal to do so? So I guess you can't say for sure what the intentions are behind the statement, but to me that's not the way it reads at all. It clearly sounds like they're implying that she filed a false police report. Now this so then this next point wasn't in the article but it's a common argument that you'll hear against Tara Reid and her story um that Her story is inconsistent. They like to discredit her saying that she keeps changing her story. So I got to clear some air on that. So when they're saying she's changing her story, what they're talking about is the fact that she didn't tell the complete story when she first came out. She never actually changed it. She stopped short of just telling the details of the rape when she first told her story. And that's not unusual at all for a sexual assault victim to hold back at first. I mean, they're dealing with shame. They're dealing with the fear of the backlash they might receive. They're the fear of being smeared, like she clearly is right now. It's not uncommon. It happens, it's consistent with women in her situation. If you look at the Harvey Weinstein victims, they often told their stories slowly, revealing more information as they felt comfortable letting it out. And then you look at the actual piece of evidence that just came up that you don't hear them talking about. Um, One of the things is she said that. She filed a harassment claim with the Senate Personnel Office after the incident. And Biden rejects this, but the papers, the complaint is there. Her complaint exists in paper, in writing. The problem is that the complaint is under seal at the University of Delaware, and they're not required to make those papers public until two years after Biden leaves office. They can choose to release those papers, and they should when it comes to a criminal complaint, but they won't. Of course they won't. Everybody's covering up for the Biden campaign. Another piece of evidence that just came to light just a couple days ago, Tara Reid had mentioned that her mother called into Larry King Live after the incident, asking for advice for her daughter. But Tara Reid didn't really bring up, she didn't know exactly when it happened. She didn't have too many details. But then an investigative reporter did some digging and he found the footage and he brought it to light. And you can watch it online. So the call was made during a program on Larry King Live titled Washington, the cruelest city on earth. And in the video, you can hear her mom ask.
0: "Yes, Hello. Um, I'm wondering what um, uh, a, a staffer uh, would to do besides go to the press in Washington. My daughter has just left there uh, after working for a prominent senator and could not get through with her problems at all. And the only thing she could have done was go to the press and she chose not to do it out of respect for him. Or she had a story to tell, but out of respect for the person she worked for, she didn't
1: tell it. That's true. Now you have people saying, well, she didn't mention anything about sexual assault. Well, that's true, but the entire point wasn't about getting into the details of the instance. It was about what options does she have in this instance. And you can't blame a mother for not going into the details about her daughter's sexual assault and rape on live television. First of all, they might, not have, might have told her not to because they might not have aired it then. But the whole point was, who can she go to? She she filed a complaint, which exists, and that did nothing. The only other option is to go to the press or something that's going to hurt the person that she is working for, and she didn't feel comfortable doing that. And the story shows great consistency with Tara's account. That's one of the biggest questions that people ask is, well, did you tell anybody is there any evidence from back then that can prove that you didn't just concoct this story now in 2020 for political reasons? And this clearly shows that something occurred. It was enough for her mom to call into Larry King Live against Tara's wishes to ask for advice in a motherly act to protect her daughter. This changes things, whether the media wants to recognize that or not. I And I just saw this today. This is how the media is recognizing it. I just saw that uh, the new the story came out a couple days ago, and then yesterday, Um, it was reported that that episode had been removed from Google. And you look at it, and they removed that episode of Larry King Live from Google, so you can't watch it. Now, why would that happen? The same reason that the New York Times article was edited, because the Biden campaign is manipulating the media to prevent the public from being informed. And you know who does that? Guilty people. If you aren't guilty, you should feel confident in your word especially you have the media on your side, they're refusing to cover it in detail. And when they do cover it, they cover it with skepticism and doubt. But then an actual piece of evidence comes to light and you immediately have it removed within a day. That changes things. That kind of behavior tips the scale and direction of guilt more than Tara's word ever did. And you're doing it to yourself. It changes things, whether mainstream media wants to recognize that or not, which frankly, I don't even care anymore. I hope people see that this is a real issue. I hope they see that mainstream media refuses to cover it like it is one, and I hope it degrades their credibility because they have no credibility. If they want to use their power as the primary news source of this country to control a narrative instead of inform the public, their degradation can't happen soon enough. All right, let's move on to the headlining act of the year, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. And the attack ads have begun. And it's already a huge mess. <laughs> um, all right, let's listen to the first one that Trump came out with a couple of weeks the first big ad that Trump came out with attacking Joe Biden a couple weeks ago. And I don't know how to play videos, so I'm just probably going to play the audio and then post a picture or something so you don't have to like stare at me as I watch this video
0: This is a crisis
1: This is no time
0: for Donald Trump's record of hysterical xenophobia.
1: Biden's son inked a billion-dollar deal with a subsidiary of the Bank of China.
0: China is going to eat our lunch? Come on, man. They're not bad folks, folks. Since the outbreak, the Communist Party has been mobilizing overseas organizations to buy local supplies and send them to China. It is in our self-interest that China continue to prosper. What a beautiful history we wrote together banning all travel will not stop the president is right the travel restriction on china is every public health official we've talked to said bought the country time that was a very smart move right There's there xenophobia xenophobia i complimented him on uh on dealing with china I'm, I'm not going nuts
1: all right so this ad does two things the first one is obvious the other is still still obvious but it's just not quite as obvious so first, it attacks Joe Biden. And this attacks him on like every single front possible. The His call, Joe calling the travel ban xenophobic, and then his personal interest in supporting China, his relations before and during. They briefly mentioned his son Hunter. They even throw in things about his cognitive decline, saying he forgot, saying I'm not going nuts at the end. So if this is the first ad that the Trump campaign is coming out with, then Biden's in for a bumpy road because they're making it clear they're not going to hold back on anything. And you wouldn't expect them to. Why would they? Why would they hold back on him? And everybody was flipping out at Bernie for continuing to run because they thought that he would hurt Joe in the race against Trump. Well, first off, Bernie couldn't have said anything that Trump isn't going to bring up. And the only thing that that softball primary race did was not allow the people to properly vet who we decided to run with against Trump. If these issues had been brought up, his relationship with China, his son Hunter, his trade deals, him supporting the Iraq war, maybe we would have thought that maybe he isn't the strongest guy to put up against Trump. I mean, he has the most ammo against him for Trump to use. If that stuff had been out in the open, the people would look at that and be like, yeah, maybe he's not electable. Maybe that's just a lie that the media is telling us because they want somebody who's going to push the status quo. They want some kind of neoliberal hack in office and not somebody who's actually going to work for the American people. Maybe they would have seen that. That's why they were pressuring Bernie to drop out and not to attack him because they were afraid that would happen. I mean, compare it to Bernie, Trump versus Bernie. Bernie's been consistent throughout his entire career. Trump would have had a hell of a time trying to conjure up real attacks on him. The only thing Trump would be able to come up with misleading tactics screaming socialism communism venezuela things that aren't even relevant to bernie's political views at all joe has real ammo that trump can use against him but the other thing that trump the trump campaign does with this ad is not just attack joe but he further deflects blame from our poor response to this pandemic off of trump and onto china the main theme throughout this video other than Joe has bad judgment and is losing his mind, is China. Basically, this is all China's fault. Look how Joe stood up for them until the end where he flip-flops and says he supported Trump's moves against China. It just keeps pushing that narrative that, look, China, there's a lack of transparency. There's reason to throw blame on China. Just forget about Trump over there. He didn't do anything that bad. So it's pretty smart how they didn't just attack Biden in that one ad but they push the narrative that China is to blame for the situation we're in right now, but they didn't push it in a totally obvious way. Obviously it's not true. Um, Trump is to blame. He's, he's been setting us up for failure for the last four years. So, but all of you know that. So uh, let's look at the Biden campaign. Um, They put out an ad that was seemed like a direct response to this one Uh, let's take a look at that
0: he failed to act so now trump and his allies are launching negative attacks against joe biden to hide the truth here are the facts joe biden warned the nation in january that trump had left us unprepared for a pandemic then, Biden told Trump he should insist on having American health experts on the ground in China. I would be on the phone with China and making it clear, we are going to need to be in your country. You have to be open. You have to be clear. We have to know what's going on. But Trump rolled over for the Chinese. He took their word for it. The president tweeted, China has been working very hard to contain the coronavirus. The United States greatly appreciates their efforts and transparency. China, I spoke with President Xi, and they're working very, very- very hard, and I think it's going to all work out fine. Trump praised the Chinese 15 times in January and February as the coronavirus spread across the world. It's a tough situation. I think they're doing a very good job. Are you concerned about its potential impact on the global economy? I think that China will do a very good job. Trump never got a CDC team on the ground in China, and the travel ban he brags about Trump let in 40,000 travelers from China into America after he signed it. Not exactly airtight. Look around, 22 million Americans are out of work and we have more officially reported cases and deaths than any other country. Donald Trump left this country unprepared and unprotected for the worst public health and economic crisis in our lifetime. And now we are paying the price. All the negative ads in the world can't change the truth.
1: So he seems to be like trying to out China Trump with this ad. (laughs) It's like, well, I mean, he points out that, yeah, Trump's failure to act is responsible for the crisis, but he leans way too heavily on the let's look at China card. There should have been very minimal substance on China's lack of transparency being the reason we're in this crisis. Because while that was a factor, that was a sliver compared to the platitudes of other ways that Trump failed us with this crisis he cut funding to the cdc several times throughout his, his administration he cut pandemic preparedness teams he failed to keep up with the federal stockpile of medical supplies and equipment despite anything china did we still knew a pandemic was coming it was going to come eventually and trump cut all of the preventative measures that we had in place i mean there's a video that's going viral, viral right now of obama back in like 2014 and people are saying like oh obama called it he knew it he, somehow knew that this was going to happen. It's like, no, that's not, that shouldn't be blowing your mind. Everybody knew this was going to happen. This isn't a surprise. That's why there's pandemic prevention and preparedness programs in place. We know what's going to happen. It's inevitable. Obama wasn't like somehow calling it when nobody else knew. Everybody knew. Everybody was calling Trump out when he made those cuts, when he cut those programs, when he cut those teams. That's where the failure is. That's where we need to focus. And after all that, yes, he didn't put the pressure on China as much as he should have, too. So Biden not only played right into Trump's game of deflection, but he also, like, placing that level of blame on another country wasn't something that his supporters agree with. So he also played into Trump's attacks against him, in a way. After he released that, he faced uh, Biden faced severe backlash from the Democratic voters for being xenophobic himself. And I think the travel ban was a good thing. And I think most people realize that now too. I didn't speak out against it when it happened. And if I did, maybe I did. But if I did, I'll admit it. I was wrong. I think it was a good thing. Um, and speaking of the travel ban, Trump, like, Trump claims the travel ban was instinct and a result of his very smart, you know what, as he likes to call his brain or his a brain. But Anthony Fauci said directly in one of the White House briefings that he said, we thought a travel ban on China was the the safest thing to do. So we recommended it to the president and it was done. Then we did the same thing with Europe, then we did the same thing with the UK. So yes, it was good that Trump took swift action in following their advice. I'm not trying to take that away from him at all. But it wasn't his instinct. It wasn't even his idea. If it proved to be a smart move, which it did, and he was going to take all the credit for it just like he is now but i guarantee you that if it proved to be the wrong move he would have he would have not taken the blame at all he would have had a reason to blame everybody else because they did tell him to do it so it, it's just he says i have this natural ability to do these things no he there were health experts nobody has natural abilities at this health experts are telling them what to do based off of data and their expertise and It was good that he followed their advice, but it wasn't his a brain. Anyway, so I think that the travel bans were good moves, but nonetheless, it's not right to pin all the blame on China. The finger needs to be pointed back at us, back at Trump, back at our government. They failed to do that with this ad when they should have, the Biden campaign. So the big question is, who does it look like is going to win this fall? Well, the answer is I have no idea. There's just way too much time before the election to even consider making any sort of prediction. And I think if anybody is, they have no idea what they're talking about. Right now, it's like the neck, the race is like neck and neck. And it's between two wild cards, two loose cannons. There's just no way of telling what they're going to do between now and November. The only thing we know for sure is that it's not going to be a smooth ride. They're there're going to be some big things that happen between now and November. There's no way that two of these two people can make it that long without some major controversies brewing up. So we're just going to have to yeah, I mean as things develop, I think it's going to become more clear, but right now it's not clear at all. Um all right, so let's talk about who Joe Biden might be picking for VP. There's a lot of talk about that right now. So he confirmed that it would be a woman woman During the last debate with uh, Bernie, a lot of people are under the strong assumption that it's going to be a black woman to boot. I think it could be a black woman. I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think the odds are any higher that that's the direction he's going to go in. If anything, I think there might be a slightly lower chance that it's a black woman. Because while he swore that he would pick a woman for VP, he also promised to pick a black woman for Supreme Court. And specifying that his Supreme Court pick isn't just going to be a woman, but a black woman is basically Washington speak for saying, don't get upset with me if I don't pick a woman of color for VP, because I told you that's what I'm going to pick for Supreme Court. So he's just making sure all of his bases are covered. So I don't know how narrowed down his mind was when he made those statements. If he was still bouncing around a list of 10 names or just a few, if he had his mind nearly made up, then it's likely he worded it that way for a reason. And for that reason. If not, then it's still up in the air, and it can go either way. Um, I don't think the odds are any higher, though. But the way I see it, right now there are a few options that I think are a possibility, but they're unlikely, somewhat unlikely. And then there's a couple that I really think it comes down to that I think it's going to be between. Um, So the most popular choice for Joe Biden himself and for a lot of the Democratic base is Michelle Obama a lot of people are talking about that. You know, we 8 years of Obama Biden, why not 8 more Biden Obama? Joe said it in an interview the other day, I'd take her in a heartbeat. She's brilliant. She knows the way around. She's a really fine woman. Gross. The Obamas are great friends. So he's not hiding it at all that she would basically be his first choice. Which I think he there was another quote too where he said uh, he, um That is his first choice. I don't know. But yeah, I'd take her in a heartbeat. Seems like that's his his first choice. Presumably, it's for her popularity. She's very popular. She's very liked within both the Democratic Party and among independents. Plus, she was named the most admired woman in America the last two years. And then she wrote that book that came out not too long ago. And that's hugely popular. So it'd be pretty easy choice for joe to choose her as vp but electability is by far that's her biggest strength that's what she's bringing to the table other than her time as first lady she doesn't have any political experience she's never worked directly in politics herself and joe said one of the most important things is experience you know he needs to be able to hand things you know 20 to 30 percent of his business to the vice president because it's not It's too big for one man to handle. So, I mean, you could say she got a lot of experience being first lady for almost a decade, but is that qualifying experience? I mean, it's one thing to work alongside a politician and another to be a politician. Like, you wouldn't trust a roadie with no musical experience to take over for the lead singer of a band just because he worked alongside the singer for years. But... I mean, not having been a working politician herself, like, I just don't know. Personally, I don't like that because I don't know what that means as far as influence on Joe Biden and his administration. Is it going to be just like Barack? Is it going to be, you know, much more different than that or contrast to Barack? Because of that, I'm not much of a fan of the idea. It's basically he's just adding to the whole popularity contest factor there's no real substance as far as policy goes just like there was no real substance as far as policy in the primary when people voted for Biden he didn't have su- he didn't didn't talk about policy it wasn't clear so i mean to be fair though i don't really know a whole lot about michelle obama in the first place so i could be totally wrong maybe she has very defined views that provide a clear idea of what she stands for and what she would do in office but overall i just don't see any reason for choosing michelle obama other than the fact that she would increase his chance of winning more than anybody else. But then you consider that Biden lacks enthusiasm and he's going against Donald Trump. Electabilities might just be that much more important than everything else. But I hesitate to say that because if it was more important than everything else, then his best choice for VP that would increase his chances of winning more than anybody else would clearly be Bernie Sanders. I mean, he chooses Bernie as VP, he gets the best of both worlds. He gets all of the blue no matter who people, all of the centrist Democrats, and then he's going to get all of those progressive Democrats as well. The you know the blue no matter who progressives are already voting for him, but the never Biden progressives, a large chunk of them are going to vote for him too if Bernie is on the ticket as the VP, especially for reasons I'll get into later. But Having said all that, Michelle Obama is clearly Joe's number one choice, but that's, that's if he was given the choice. Because the other side of this is, unfortunately for Joe, she has zero interest in holding any sort of political position. And she said it directly several times. In her book, she said, I'll say it here directly. I have no intention of running for office, ever. It's about as clear as you can be. And then there was a podcast interview last year where she talked about how after being first lady for eight years, there's no anonymity left. And that prevents her from living a life comparable to an average American living in America. She said, so I don't know as much as I would want to, to be in a political position of leadership, to kind of know what are you feeling? Because you can't experience life behind a tinted window in a car. So we sacrificed that, and that's not a complaint, but if I'm going to be a leader, I've got to be in there. I've got to be able to be in there overhearing people's truths and really being able to see their pain without it being filtered through the veil of me. I think those are very fair points. And I think her bringing it up like that, like hearing that, almost makes me want her to be Biden's VP now. Biden's VP now. Because she's basically saying she's too honest and moral to run for office, which I'd rather have somebody a little out of touch, but with a functioning moral compass in office than what Congress and the White House is full of now, extremely out-of-touch people who have long since ditched their moral compasses. And A friend and advisor for Michelle said, let me be very clear. It will never happen. She has committed her life to public service and she's going to use her incredible platform to be a force for good, but not in politics. And then even Joe Biden said, I don't think she has any desire to live near the White House again. And that's when they asked him, um, he was talking about how much he'd love to have her. So it sounds pretty clear that there's no chance that she would say yes to Joe's offer if he makes an offer. And that's my assumption as well. I don't think it's going to happen, but I don't think it's impossible either. I don't think we can totally throw it aside, even despite her saying it as directly as she had, because Barack said he wasn't interested in running in the 2008 presidential race. And look how that turned out ended up not only running but winning twice and another thing is when she refuses the idea of running for office she has the main reason of saying it's not it wouldn't be the right thing to do she wants to dedicate her time to public service she wants to do good but right now we're facing a biden versus trump presidential election most notably we're facing another trump election and i think that Everybody can see that Trump's odds of winning are getting bigger and bigger with each passing week. I mean, Biden is doing far worse in the polls versus Trump than Hillary was in 2016, and she lost. So I think if you ask the question in this context, she might change her mind. If you say, the best thing we could do for the American people is to kick Donald Trump out of the White House, that would be more beneficial than any program or charity that you start. And our best shot at doing that is with you on the ticket. People chose Obama-Biden for eight years before Trump. It might take Biden-Obama to kick him back out. So while I think it might be possible in this era, if you you put it in that context, considering how crazy everything else has been this last year, I wouldn't be shocked, but I'd still be surprised. I still don't think it's going to happen. So who are Joe's likely picks for VP? Well, there's certainly a lot of talk around... Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Kamala, Kamala, Kamala Harris, Stacey Abrams, and Gretchen Whitmer. So I'll talk about each of them. Uh, Before I get into each of them, though, it's worth noting that Joe's VP pick is even more important in this election than usual. That's why people are so, well, they're always excited to hear it, but I think that they're a little more excited this year than they are in almost every other election. There's two big reasons. First, if Joe wins, he'll be the oldest first-term president in the history of the United States. Currently, the oldest first-term president is his opponent, Donald Trump. He was 70 when he began his first term. If Biden wins, he's gonna be 78, almost an entire decade older, starting his first term as president. And then you consider that you know, that's his first term, he might not be running for a second term. Because I mean, you pair this with his obvious cognitive decline, it's very likely that whoever he picks as VP may actually be running the show as well during the first term, during his first term as president, but then also after too. So it might be like another Bush-Cheney situation where, yeah, George Bush was president, but Cheney was the one actually calling the shots. So whoever he picks for president is going to need some strong leadership skills and their political values and beliefs are going to be very important to many of us because they're going to have major influence on the way this administration is run. So it's a great opportunity for Biden to reach out to that base of supporters on the progressive left who are very wary about voting for him right now. If he makes a good VP choice when we know that that vice president is going to have a large amount of influence on his administration, you know, if he picks us, if he picks somebody to just amplify his beliefs even though people didn't vote for him based off of policy. If he just picks somebody to amplify his beliefs, then he's not really going to expand his coalition of vote of supporters and people that vote for him in November. If he picks an opposing vice president, somebody who, you know, I mean, they're both on the left, but they have a more progressive belief system that opposes some of what he believes, that's going to expand the administration. That's going to be more attractive, to more of the democratic base and that's what he's going to need. We voted for him based off electability, that's what he better do. So another another factor of this is of his age is that whoever he picks is going to most likely be the leader of the Democratic Party after his presidency, whether that's after the first term or after 8 years. So if he chooses to step down after his first term or if his health declines or something happens, we're not really going to be having a choice in who is picked in the 2024 election, because the DNC is just gonna run the sitting vice president. Unless he picked Bernie, then I'm sure they'll find a way to pick, an excuse to pick somebody else. So his choice is very important. And Joe said himself, he's considering all this. He's openly acknowledged that these factors will have a major effect on his decision. But also as potential voters consider this, I mean, if he chooses wisely, he needs to take advantage of this opportunity to make up some ground on that Bernie supporter front. So the second thing is how much his VP is going to affect the outcome of this race. So the electability factor, it's projected to be a very close race. The results are basically neck and neck right now. Joe's whole thing is electability. He's electable despite less than a quarter of the Democratic base right now is actually enthusiastic about voting for him or about him winning. And I can't see that getting much better. As things stand right now, especially considering the fact that every single TV appearance he makes, he incoherently rambles at some point or another. So he's going to need to drum up some excitement. And not only that, but people desperately want to be excited to vote for him. The Democratic Party is just desperate to find any reason to vote for him other than beating Donald Trump. And I think a lot of people are hoping and relying on his vice president pick to do just that. So whoever he picks is going to end up having a huge impact on the number of those on the left that decide to cast their vote for him. So while it's important to pick somebody with a good ideology and with good political views, and in my eyes, that's the most important thing, but in reality, it's just as important for Joe's campaign to pick somebody who's popular, who's electable. But then in my eyes, picking somebody that has a progressive ideology is going to make voting for that you know ticket more electable in November? That's not the way he's going to see it. I'm guessing. Um. So with electability, that that's no doubt why he committed to picking a woman months before he even needed to make a choice. Right off of the, off of the bat, going for a popular choice. What's going to get him more support? Picking a woman running mate. And I fully support anybody in office if I support their beliefs, man or woman, anything in between, any race, sexual orientation, I don't care. I'm not a fan of identity politics. I'm not a fan of popularity contests. I'm not a fan of lobbied politicians. I'm not a fan of anything that takes away from the substance at the core of politics, your values, your true ideology. I don't think a group of people should be avoided because of their gender or race or any superficial reason, but I don't think... Somebody should be picked just because they fulfill a superficial reason either if they don't have the ideology that we want. But then I get saying that I get that a lot of groups of people, pretty much anybody but straight white males, have been oppressed for so long that they never had a fair chance to hold positions of power in government. Though now, present day, the playing field has been leveled, But that doesn't take away from the fact that it wasn't level for so long and i mean it's not i'm not saying it's totally leveled because i don't think it's a coincidence that it's still such a large percentage that it's just straight white dudes old dudes in the office it's it's getting better and it's a lot better now than it's ever been obviously but um i've so i've said it before though like if it comes down to two choices and they're truly tied in your eyes their beliefs and values fall within your own, <clears throat> they're pushing the policy you believe in, and one, one of them is your standard white bread dude and the other is a woman or a person of color or minority, then go with that woman, go with that minority. Go with the person of color because I think that they do deserve that chance. But if one of those options stands out, they have more heart than the others, if they're more in line with your values, if they're less, if they're not corrupt, one of them's corrupted, one of them's being lobbied by the organizations, don't pick that person just because they're a minority and the other one's a white dude. You know, you still got to go with the person who believes what you be- who's going to push what you believe in, who's going to help the American people, who's going to do the most good. Whether it's, you know, a white person or a colored person or a male or a female or a woman, you know. Don't go with another option just because you want to avoid, you know, picking a male or something. It's what's on the inside that matters. So anyway, maybe Joe is saying that because there are a lot of qualified female candidates that he felt comfortable choosing from, which is great as long as he isn't thinking, you know, just woman first and value second. I do think that's probably the case, though, is, you know, there are so many women that he can choose from that are just as good as any male other I mean I think Bernie Sanders would be the best choice but there are so many women that he thinks are you know just as qualified so it's like I'm why even consider throw men in on the list let's just keep it down to women and I think if that's the case that's fine okay let's talk about Stacey Abrams so Stacey Abrams is kind of doing exactly what I'm not a fan of which which is she's taking it a step further and she's even though Joe Biden's confirmed that he's going to pick a woman she's kind of trying to shame and guilt him saying if he that he needs to pick a black woman. And I'm not saying that I don't want him to pick a black woman. I'd be thrilled to have a black woman for president or vi- VP as long as she's a good choice. I just don't want to be in a situation where he makes a poor choice just to check a box when there may have been other choices that would have been better for the American people but I've already talked about that. She might just be saying that, though, just because she thinks it'll increase her chances of picking her since she herself is, in fact, a black woman. And so far, she's basically treated this like the total opposite of Michelle Obama as far as enthusiasm for the position goes. She's very vocal about wanting the position. In a magazine interview, she said, I would be an excellent running mate. I have the capacity to attract voters by motivating typically ignored communities. I have a strong history of executive and management experience in the private, public and nonprofit sectors. I spent 25 years in independent study of foreign policy. I am ready to help advance an agenda of restoring America's place in the world. If I am selected, I am pre- I'm prepared and excited to serve. So she's definitely pushing both ideas that she's popular and that she has the experience. Though a lot of people are actually skeptical about um, her being a viable choice because she doesn't quite have the experience that the others do. Mainly because she became popular. She came into the public's eye because she lost a run for governor, Georgia governor, in 2018. That's how she she became popular, is losing an uh, election. Other than that, she did serve in the House for 10 years, though, and she was the House Minority Leader for six of them. Um, but Joe's Again, one of his big things is uh, that the job is too big for one person. He needs to be able to look at the VP and say, this is your responsibility, and he needs somebody with plenty of experience. So her experience just being in the House and a failed governor run might not be enough for Joe. And That's what a lot of people are saying. But then I would argue, then why is he so willing to push or pick Michelle Obama? Why are the people pushing Michelle Obama so hard then? Because she has literally zero experience holding any sort of political position. I mean, sure, she was first lady for eight years, but if I need my plumbing fix, I'd have more trust in an an apprentice than the plumber's wife. So I don't don't get how Stacey Abrams' experience is any worse than Michelle Obama's. So that aside, what are her political views? Um, just because I didn't really know anything about Stacey Abrams, so I kind of dug into that a little bit more than the others, just so I at least knew what she believed. So she's a little bit more uh, progressive than some of the other options. First, she holds all the strong democratic beliefs, pro-choice, expanding gun control, easing voter ID laws. Uh, for health care, um, some of her big things are expanding Medicaid to low-income residents, more support for rural hospitals, education, education. Um, One of her big things is she opposes school vouchers in favor of using funds to instead improve public education, and then criminal justice reform: ending cash bail for poor defendants, ending the death penalty, decriminalizing small amounts of marijuana possession, which that doesn't go far enough. Um, But anyways, a lot of her views have to do with um, she's really strong in just supporting the lower income class, expanding Medicaid to lower income families, increasing support for rural hospitals, and public schools, ending cash bails for poor defendants. I think that further Medicaid expansion is definitely a step in the right direction, What she wants to do, because I think a great next step for Medicare for all, since you know it's not all going to happen at once, step by step, would be expanding it to lower income citizens. Of course, I'd prefer to take it much further than that, not stop there. But it is a step in the right direction, and I think it's a bigger step in the right direction than just lowering the age of Medicare from 65 to 60, like Joe Biden wants to do. Um, And then increasing support for rural hospitals and public education and ending cash bill. Those are all supporting issues that we have right now that are basically issues that punish poverty right now. Like if a hospital in a poor area is poor itself, you know, if the hospital doesn't have funding, then you're not going to have access to decent health care just because you're poor. And with private school vouchers, it takes away from public funding to aid in private school tuition. So when public schools really need all the funding they can get, they can't get it. And not everybody has the option for a private school to go to a private school. And the cash bail, while the premise of cash bail seems to make sense, it's just collateral to make sure you show up for court. It, again, just punishes poverty. I mean, if you're in jail, you're presumably innocent until proven guilty. You can't, but you can't leave if you can't afford bail. You're stuck there, even if you're innocent. So you shouldn't be subject to stricter punishment just because you're poor. So despite the, I mean, she's got a, a little bit more of a progressive agenda than some of the other options that I think are more likely, not more likely, Some just some of the ones that it comes down to um but people aren't taking her seriously as an option a lot of people are just actually laughing at her gung-ho-ness of just saying i think he should pick me just outright because that's very unpolitical to say it that way um but she continues to keep fighting for it more than anybody else i think everybody else is just kind of playing it cool like yeah that'd be nice Um, Another huge favorite that many are assuming is a shoe in is the other progressive option, Elizabeth Warren. She actually has also expressed clear interest in the position. She was asked in an interview, I don't have the exact wording, but it was a pretty direct question, like, would you accept if Joe Biden asked you to be his VP? And she answered, also in a kind of unpolitical fashion with just a straightforward yes. So, And that was despite actually in 2016, I think Joe Biden, when he was considering running, wanted her to be his running mate too. And she wouldn't say yes or no to that. So she's, this time she's all, she's all in. And she would be a good opposition vice president, like I was talking about earlier. Instead of picking somebody who holds very similar political beliefs as himself to amplify his position and strengthen just his base that already supports him. Elizabeth Warren would help by expanding his base of supporters by being that opposition of his beliefs on the left. And by reaching out to those that Joe desperately needs, if he wants to beat Trump, the progressive left, then that should be very attractive to the Biden campaign to pick somebody like that. One problem is that Elizabeth Warren didn't do that great in the primary at all, actually. I mean, for what we were hoping or her supporters were hoping what everybody actually thought, because she was actually the front runner for a long time in the um earlier I mean like last year. And she ended up actually performing surprisingly bad. She she got third in her own state. So that's a concern for some people. The other issue is that while she lives in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, her support base is largely comprised of well educated suburban progressives. And that's a group that Joe actually doesn't need help with right now because they're already largely committed to voting against Trump. They're basically, her supporters are the blue no matter who progressives. Whereas the uh, never Biden progressives are the ones who vote on policy and they're not just voting for a color. Those are the ones that, I mean, Bernie had a a large uh, hold on those supporters and those are the ones that he actually needs to get. And they they might not fall in line behind Warren. Um, actually, a large chunk of them might, but that's not really what her base of supporters was comprised of. Though, I mean, so she may sway some of them, but ultimately, she might not bring enough to the table for Joe's campaign to consider her as much as I think that they actually should consider her. Another issue was is that Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden have a bit of a history. Like they've definitely not always gotten along. They've actually. Not gotten along pretty much almost their entire history in government together, and just a tiny amount have they actually like worked together. And Joe always said that about choosing his VP, it's important to have a good relationship with who he picks, to have good rapport with whoever he goes with. So, uh, so a little history about Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. So like, when she first came into government in the '90s, Joe was a senator. And Elizabeth Warren was a lawyer specializing in bankruptcy. And she came in because of the bankruptcy bill. Joe was in favor of the bankruptcy bill, which was, in a nutshell, reforming bankruptcy law to make it more difficult to file for bankruptcy because there was an unusual number of bankruptcy filings at the time. So Joe's solution was to make it harder to file for bankruptcy. And that'll just decrease the total number. Elizabeth Warren was strongly opposed to it. She was very vocal vocal about it, about how... The bankruptcy reform would just treat the symptom, not the problem. Instead of digging into why are people filing for bankruptcy in such large numbers, like healthcare costs or credit card debt caused by credit card lenders being more aggressive in their marketing, and instead of fixing those things, you just want to make it harder to file for bankruptcy to solve the problem. Warren compared it to cutting down on hospital admissions during a malaria epidemic by locking the door which is totally true. I'm 100% on Warren's side on this. That's not how you solve a problem. So Warren ended up butting up with Hillary Clinton, who was the first lady, and then she got her to oppose the bill and then ultimately convinced Bill to veto it when it got on his desk, which he did end up doing in 2000. So Warren was victorious on that front at that time. Then years later, the same issue came up again, the bankruptcy bill, during the Bush administration this time. And Warren, again, became very vocal about it. And this time, she started singling Joe out specifically by name. She was saying Joe was doing the bidding of the cluster of financial companies incorporated in a state because Joe was the senator of Delaware. And that's where a large number of major banks and credit institutions base their operations out of. Like you might notice, if you ever get email from a major financial institution or if you get spam mail from a credit card company, it often comes from Delaware, more specifically Wilmington, Delaware, a lot just because they have more laxed laws on those um, for credit card institutions, so they base their operations out of there, out of Delaware. She said, banking and credit credit lobbyists have been trying to change the bankruptcy law for years. The current bill was stuck in conference between the Senate and House until Senator Joseph Biden of Delaware, where many bank and credit card issuers are incorporated, agreed to vote with Republicans on almost all the issues that were holding up the bill. She was basically calling out Joe for being a wolf in sheep's clothing. And she didn't stop there. There were several articles and speeches made attacking Joe repeatedly and Joe was speaking on the Senate floor in retaliation. There's even a video you can find online of the two of them sparring in 2005. It was a 15-minute heated debate. And you can tell that they're, they're at odds with each other. Um, but in the end, the, this time the bill ended up passing. And then just a side note, they published studies a decade after the bill had passed to show that the bill actually never did crack down on bankruptcy abuse the way that they thought it would or Joe Biden thought it would. Ultimately, it just made it more difficult for people to file for bankruptcy when they were in financial, financial distress, the people that actually needed it, exactly what Elizabeth Warren is warning of. And Biden's history is just riddled with this type of stuff. Just bad decisions that hurt the American people, because he, whether he's working for the financial institutions in the state that he's senator of, or if he just has bad judgment, probably the former. But then, almost a uh, so a decade later, she becomes a senator, and Joe Biden's the one that swears her in. The two seem to be pleasant towards each other, like they're over their differences, and Biden even like whispered to her on a hot mic, "You gave me hell" or something. But they were laughing. It was all good. But then her time in the Senate during the Obama administration ended up getting a little bumpy again. This time she was in direct opposition to not just Biden, but Obama herself, Obama calling her out by name at times. But then, like I said, in 2016, Biden was considering running for president and he leaned very heavily towards Elizabeth Warren as his running mate. She seemed to be his number one choice, but she wasn't straightforward with a yes or a no. So. So is the past in the past. When he said it was important to have somebody he had a good relationship with, was he saying that with her in mind? Letting us know he wasn't really considering her for this this time around, not to mention the tweet that he sent out when she dropped out, we need you in the Senate, implying that she would be staying there. But overall, if these last couple months showed us any have shown us anything, it's that you can't really be surprised and things can change in a heartbeat. So I think she's still a pretty strong contender. She would help broaden his support base she's shown strong leadership she has plenty of experience she can destroy on the debate stage her obliterating bloomberg at in his first debate was one of my favorite moments of all time favorite debate moments and i'm not like a huge warren supporter but she's she's shown very strong debate skills when she actually comes out so i wouldn't rule her out by any means another favorite is kamala harris She's a really strong contender and a huge favorite right now, and her ideology falls very closely to Joe's as a centrist that's ultimately in favor of upholding the status quo. On top of that, she's gained a lot of popularity in her presidential run from last year, but one issue is one of the things that gave her the traction during a presidential run was a spar that she had with Joe Biden during one of the debates. She called him out for opposing busing back in his early days in the Senate. 40, like 40 years ago, and she attacked him with enthusiasm and passion, and it was like a standout moment in the debate, one that elevated her for her strong debate skills, but then it also gave her some negative attention for strongly di- starting to divide the Democratic Party, as some people thought. But then she dropped out, and Joe showed her that there were no hard feelings. He said, you ran a hell of a race. The biggest thing we can do is make Donald Trump a one-term president, so I'm coming for you, kid, which sounds like he's strongly considering her for VP. It sounds like he's basically saying that, but if he did pick her, she's definitely going to be one that amplifies Joe's campaign. She's not going to add a ton to the electability factor other than her checking both of those popularity boxes of being a woman and being black. But other than that, her ideology just falls right in line with Joe's. She's not really aiming for any major reform or change. If it's not broken, don't fix it, or just put on your blinders and pretend it's not broken so you don't have to acknowledge it. For Joe, it's aviators but if regardless of joe wants somebody he can trust to run with 20 to 30% of the business as president like he said she's probably his best choice or what he would consider his best choice that's not who i want to see at all that's not going to help get my vote at all um the last person i think is a serious contender is amy klobuchar personally i think it comes down ultimately to kamala harris and amy klobuchar more than anyone else like kamala her political views are similar to Joe's and she's also shown very strong leadership in her time as senator. She's possibly the most productive person in Congress out of all 100 senators. She ranked first in most bills signed into law. And then it's rumored that she cracks the whip pretty hard in the office too. She has one of the highest turnover rates for employees. So that good leadership is a good thing to have too for Vice President if Joe wants to consider somebody who might be taking the reins after he's done possibly after the first term. And while she wouldn't expand his coalition as far as moving his base of support as farther to the left, since she has the same political views as him, she does possess another important attribute of being the senator of Minnesota. Because the Midwest holds some huge battleground states that could very easily decide the election this year for as close as it is. Trump surprisingly took both Wisconsin and Michigan in 2016, which could have ultimately cost Hillary the election. With the race being that, like looking to be that close again, if she can help him get more of that Midwest vote, then she might be a shoe in. So I think it comes down to whether he wants to pick somebody that holds similar political views, amplifies his position, or if he wants to reach out to a more progressive candidate that opposes his views but would expand his base. And Amy Klobuchar is a little bit of both, um, not the opposition, but she can expand his base by um getting more of that midwest vote which isn't expanding you know people that are more progressive but it's just getting the important midwest vote so i think that you know between picking somebody who amplifies it or picking somebody who opposes his views more progressive candidate i think considering the fact that the media sold everybody largely not largely solely on electability and that's why a a huge portion of those that voted for him did vote for him Nobody cared about his policy. They didn't vote for him because of his political views. They voted for him because he was the one that we were told would be Donald Trump. They sure as hell better go with option two, picking somebody who's more progressive and can expand his base. He can't abandon his new electability niche in favor of amplifying his neoliberal centrist political views of upholding the status quo just because he opposes a more progressive agenda. That's what the people want. If he can pick somebody more progressive to be Donald Trump, he needs to do that. He can't just risk not being Donald Trump because he wants his views and only his views. The American people are more in favor of a progressive agenda than a centrist one, the democratic base. so he can't just choose to ignore that fact and especially can't choose to ignore that fact and ultimately lose the election because of that um so another person everybody's talking about is uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, who's been at odds with Trump the last several weeks. She's been one of the loudest voices during the pandemic, along with Cuomo, about the lack of federal response and aid. Trump even gave her a nickname, that crazy lady from Michigan. And she claimed she was unable to get to order medical supplies for her state after Trump ordering the states to take care of themselves and was told by the companies that the federal government instructed them not to sell medical supplies to her. So needless to say, she came out as a major figure. There's a lot of talk of her as a potential VP, and she was also Joe's first guest on his new podcast, which also spread a lot of rumors. And when Joe was asked about his list of potential VP picks, if it got longer during the course of the pandemic, specifically talking about Gretchen Whitmer, he said, she didn't make my list longer. She was on it before the pandemic. But then she was asked directly. She made it clear that she was not really considering the position she said uh her list her hands are full with covid-19 she's only 15 months into her job that took her 2 years to get and she's not focused on national politics whatsoever at the time but she's honored to be considered so i don't think she's too realistic of an option but i think there are a couple of reasons that she might actually she should be up for further consideration one um well for the biden campaign at least one is similar to Klobuchar, michigan and Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, all major swing states that swung the wrong way in 2016, other than the lockdown protesters, she's very well favored in Michigan. So she might help him get more of that vote, that Midwest vote, especially the way she's lashed out at Trump. Another reason is that, other than Stacey Abrams and Michelle Obama, she's the only non senator up for consideration, or at least that I think for somewhat serious consideration. And that's an important thing to consider that a lot of people aren't talking about. The Republicans have had control of the Senate since 2014, and this November there are 33 seats up for election. So the Democrats need to win back the Senate, and if they want to, they're going to need to win more seats. They're going to have to take more seats from the Republican Party to take control of it. And if Biden picks a senator for VP and they win, that's just going to cost them another seat in the Senate, which could ultimately cost them control of the Senate. And it could be argued that taking control of the Senate is just as important as winning the presidency. So I think considering those two reasons, and then also if if Joe really wanted her as his running mate, though she says she's fine where she's at as governor with no intention in changing that, if Joe really did want her, I think after some real conversations, she might change her tune. I think if it really came down to it, then she might actually change her mind. So. But at this point, I don't really consider her a viable option above the other three that I think are more serious, Klobuchar, Kamala, and Warren. Now, who is the best option? Who would Joe's very best option be for him, for us, and for beating Donald Trump? Bernie Sanders. I said it earlier, it would be Bernie Sanders. And like I said earlier as well, just the mention of Bernie for VP calls for immediate dismissal. But why? Why? Why do we have to dismiss Bernie as VP? He would increase Biden's chances of winning more than anybody. Michelle Obama, the one group of voters that Biden really struggles with is young voters, especially progressive young voters. He got like 15% of the young vote for those 45 and under in a lot of the states. And who does Bernie do particularly well with? Young voters. They voted for Bernie in droves, like 80, 85% of of people 45 and under voted for Bernie in a lot of states. It would truly expand his coalition in the way he needs to, and they would almost surely beat Trump if it was a Biden-Bernie bill. But again, the DNC doesn't care about beating Trump as much as they lead on. That was all just an act. That was a narrative. Their number one priority was to keep Bernie as far out of the Democratic Party as possible. If that weren't the case, if they were truly wanting to beat Trump, they wouldn't have pushed out the candidate with the best odds of beating Trump in a head-to-head. And they would at least consider him now for VP. And I would vote for Biden for sure if Bernie was on the bill, considering the way, like, that way he's gonna get some real influence. And if Biden doesn't continue after his first term, then you could see Bernie grabbing the baton and taking it all the way in 2024. But they would never allow that. That's why Joe committed to a woman VP so early on. So there wouldn't be any pressure to put Bernie in any real position of power. At least I, I think that might've been a, a Huge factor. I mean, you don't hear anybody considering it at all, and everybody should be. It's 100% the smartest decision decision that Bernie could make for his campaign, and it's the best chance that he has at beating Trump. I swear to God, if it didn't save again, I'm going to flip the fuck out. All right. Next, I have a quick update on Richard Burr and his alleged insider trading. So just to refresh you, uh, since it's been a while since we last talked about this, Richard Burr is a senator, and he's uh, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee who came under fire for selling large amounts of stock right before the market crashed. So the timeline goes like this. He attends a confidential meeting on the coronavirus, where he receives classified information about the potential for an incoming pandemic. After the meeting, he tells the public that not only is the coronavirus situation That's coming out of China, nothing to worry about, but also that our economy is in great shape to handle a pandemic. Then he turns around and he sells over a million dollars worth of stock, like $1.7 million. And then in private meetings with investors, he warns them that the coronavirus has the potential to hit us with another Spanish flu like pandemic. So highly unethical and highly immoral, but also highly illegal. You can't use classified information that isn't available to the public for personal financial gain. That's why most members of Congress either put their financial assets in a blind trust or they have a financial advisor that makes all their investment decisions for them. This isn't only just to avoid the temptation, but also to cover your ass in case something fishy happens like this. Well, Richard Burr doesn't have his assets in a blind trust, and he, makes, he admitted he makes all of his financial decisions on, decisions on his own. And he claims that despite receiving confidential and classified intel, He can block all of that out somehow when it comes to his money and use only the public information to make his decisions. And to give you an idea of how major these trades were, he sold approximately $1.7 million worth of stock in just a few days, like six days after he received the information. His net worth is approximately $1.7 million. Selling your net worth isn't just your standard day-to-day trading. That's oh shit level trading and it's it's going to be hard not to sell stock that you know is going to plummet when you have that much tied into it that's why you have to avoid that temptation in the first place with the bind, blind trust but he didn't do that and now the FBI is investigating him and they happen to dig up more corrupt corrupt activity back in 2017 he sold a house that he owned for $900,000 it was an off-market sale a little uncommon but that's nothing to worry about i bought my house off market but he bought the home in He sold it for $900,000. He bought it in 2003 for $525,000. According to tax assessors, while the value of the home went up substantially, it was only valued at $797,000 when he sold it in 2017 for $900,000. So he sold it for over $100,000 more than its market value. Okay, well, maybe he just had an eager buyer. Well, he did. The buyer was a powerful lobbyist group that has a history of donating to Burr's campaign and had done business lobbying before burrs committees in the past to make it clear how unethical and illegal this is any amount above market value that the buyer pays to purchase a home is has to be considered a cash gift because you pay the value of the home anything above that is unnecessary it's a cash gift to the the seller you might say well maybe there were some competitive offer or buyers that drove up the price but there weren't because this was a quick one month off market transaction between just these two buyers. So you pay for the house, anything above value is just a gift. And the Senate bans senators from receiving direct gifts from lobbying groups, because obviously a gift would be obvious intent to influence their decision in the Senate, which is illegal. That's that's comparable to bribery. I mean, a lobbying group, already uses money to donate to campaigns to try and influence officials, which in my mind is highly corrupt and should not be allowed. But you take it a step further and you essentially give the senator over $100,000 directly. That's not how politics should be done, and it destroys democracy. Therefore, it's illegal. Money shouldn't control our country. The people should. That's what democracy is. And like I said, this is revealing a pattern there's likely a lot more corrupt activity. Now that we've discovered this, there's likely a lot more activity that he's participated in that we just don't know about yet. Because oftentimes, like especially what you're seeing with Richard Burr here, once you start that sort of behavior, you don't just stop. Because you already took that first step. It's easier to take the second step just a little further. You take it a little further until you're in so deep that Even an obviously blatantly corrupt move like selling $1.7 million worth of stock right before a market crash that you received classified intel about seems like a reasonable action to take. I mean, that should seem obvious to anybody that that is going to be called out. But he's gotten away with things in the past enough that he thinks he can get away with it. And then you start small and then you get big until you get busted. I mean, this house was sold three years ago, and it slid right under the radar, and nobody even raised an eyebrow. I mean, it was slicker. There were a few more moving parts. It was more covered up. He was more careful. And then he gets away with that. He moves on to another and another until he reaches just a little bit too far, and this time he's busted. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. The insider trader trading isn't just a senator being busted for one corrupt action. It revealed a rabbit hole of corrupt activity because of one slip up. I can guarantee you these two actions are not the extent of his corrupt history. Whether or not we're actually going to be able to uncover more of it is another thing because he was likely much more careful when he took those first steps into douchebag politics, letting money whisper sweet nothings into his ear. But I I hope that we can reveal more of his corrupt history, but we'll just have to wait and see. And I'll keep you updated if if anything else comes up. So, all right, folks, that's actually all I've got for you today. Um, So my next episode is going to be on COVID-19 related news. I'll talk about Trump saying that we should inject disinfectant and then blatantly lying to our faces saying it was sarcasm, even though his base of supporters spent the prior 24 hours defending it as being out of context and misunderstood. That was hilarious. Well, actually, it, it was hilarious. Then it became not hilarious because people actually started drinking like bleach and stuff. So, not that funny. Um, I'll talk about the lockdown protests, states opening up um, early, like Georgia and Florida opening up their beaches, and all that other good pandemic news. So, stay tuned for that. Also, I got to mention, I'm on, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, all of those now. So, follow me on Twitter at, at Pod Last Resort. I couldn't get Last Resort Podcast. That was the best name I could come up with. If it helps you remember, it's like podcast. Pod Last Resort. Um, And then you can search for Last Resort Podcast on Facebook, YouTube, and I'll release smaller clips of each episode